All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's ask the Lord's guidance on our study today. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, the light that it gives us, that we may think correctly, that we may understand your creation, that we may understand the problem that we all have, which is sin, and understand your magnificent grace-based solution that solved everything. Jesus said, it is finished, indicating that before he died physically, it was complete. Everything he had been sent to accomplish by you had been accomplished. Everything necessary for our salvation was fulfilled and accomplished. And so that transaction that took place on the cross finished God's plan for salvation. The only thing left is for us to trust in him. Father, as we contemplate the magnificence of your plan and of Christ's work, we pray that we might have our understanding expanded and that we might come to an even greater sense of gratitude for all that you have done for us as we stand in awe reflecting upon the work of Christ on the cross. In Christ's name, amen. We have been studying the death of Christ on the cross. We have a number of visitors here today who are here uh, for the Chafer Conference, and that's always the case. This Sunday morning, instead of giving, as I sometimes do, but not always, a special message related to the topic of the conference, I'm simply continuing our study in Matthew. We have gone through the 30, we have gone through 25 of the 33 stages that took place between uh, Christ being convicted by Pilate up to his physical death on the cross, and we are pausing to look at the accomplishments of Christ's death on the cross, that is, his spiritual death, which occurred between 12 noon and 3 p.m. Last week, we looked at the important teaching of Scripture on substitution that is fundamental for understanding the other aspects of what Christ did on the cross. In this interlude, we're looking at five things that Christ did on the cross, the substitutionary aspect of his death, that he died for us, the Scripture says. Second, the redemption, which is what we will look at today, the redemption that was provided for Christ on the cross, which focuses on a payment. Whenever you hear the word redemption, you think of the word payment. There is a price that is paid. Because that price is paid, the result of that is the next word, cancellation. The 
technical theological word, which is rarely used anymore today in in either everyday language or theological language, is expiation, which means the canceling of a debt. The debt is canceled because the payment is provided and paid for. The result of the cancellation of the debt is forgiveness, that there is a forgiveness for all because the cancellation was for all because this took place on the cross and is related to that aspect of Christ's work on the cross which is directed toward the Father and is providing an objective uh, payment for sin so that that is so that nothing is left for the individual and then that leads to the last aspect and that is satisfaction Christ's righteous I mean the uh, righteousness and justice of God is satisfied by Christ's payment this is the biblical teaching of propitiation again another word that is somewhat antiquated, not used in everyday language and not familiar to many people, but they can understand the word satisfaction pretty well. So these are the five things that we are looking at in terms of understanding what Christ accomplished on the cross for all of mankind, for all of humanity. Just a brief brief review, last week we looked at what the Bible teaches about substitutionary atonement. The key verse was Second Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There's the idea there, to be sin for us, that substitutionary idea expressed through that uh, English preposition for. And that is so important. Christ's transaction on, on the cross meant that we no longer do can do what he did. He paid the penalty on our behalf. That, that's the purpose of it, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now we learn from other things that to have his righteousness means that we must believe in him. That he died for us doesn't mean that his righteousness is automatically imputed or counted to us. We have to believe to receive that. But the payment which is the basis for that justification, has been made. This idea of substitution is pictured in the Old Testament, in the sacrifices where the person coming and bringing the sacrifice lays his hand on the head of the animal, the sheep, the goat, the bullock, whatever, and recites his sins to God so that they are transferred from him to the sacrifice. Then the sacrifice is take takes place the animal is killed on behalf of the individual it is an object lesson teaching that death is the penalty for sin and that that must be accomplished there must be a death to have forgiveness of sin but we're told by the writer of hebrews that this didn't actually provide that it was a picture of what Christ would do in the future, the picture of what the Messiah would do uh, when he came in order to make atonement. And remember last time I told you that in the Hebrew, the word kafar there really doesn't mean atonement per se. That was a made-up English theological word. In the Septuagint, it is often translated with the word katharizo, 
which means cleansing. It is the provision of that cleansing from sin, which relates it to the objective forgiveness of God because the penalty is paid. There are, I looked at several points last week, and under the last few I focused on these prepositions. For example, in Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that word for is translated with the Greek preposition anti, which means in the place of and instead of. So this idea of substitution is clearly taught not only by the pictures of the Old Testament, but by the prepositions of the New Testament. And here we see a word we'll look at this morning. It's the word lutron, which is translated ransom. And that is part of a whole word group based on that root that has the idea of paying a price, and it's often translated paying a a ransom uh, for many. So that word indicates substitution and relates that to redemption. That's what that payment of a price is. So that relates to redemption. The thirteenth point was the look at another a second preposition who pair. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. That's the Greek preposition, huper, uh, plus the genitive object of the preposition indicating substitution, one dying for another. Christ died in our place. That same preposition is used in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Then in summary... And this is important, I repeat this again and again to get it into your minds, that there are three problems that every human being faces born into a fallen world. The first is the judicial penalty of spiritual death. When Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. There was a separation that occurred between him and God. He didn't die physically for over 900 years. In fact, the penalty that is stated in Genesis 2.17 is not the penalty of physical death. It is the penalty of spiritual death. And it is seen that that has gone into effect by the time God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, that they ran and hid. They had already tried to cover their nakedness with, with fig leaves. They were aware that something had occurred and that they were separated from God. And when they heard God, they were afraid. They were spiritually dead. Then God outlines consequences of that spiritual death in Genesis 3:14 and following, the last of which is, from dust you came and to dust you will return. So the judicial penalty is spiritual death. The reality of that is that when every human being since that point has been born, they are born spiritually dead, except for Jesus Christ because of the virgin birth. So we're born, that is our experience, that's our reality, we're born spiritually dead, separated from God, and we are born unrighteous. We are corrupt. We do not have righteousness. Now, in order to get to heaven, in order to have a relationship with God, we have to be spiritually alive, and we have to have perfect righteousness. Now, Christ's death on the cross doesn't make us spiritually alive. It doesn't regenerate us, and it doesn't make us righteous. What it does do is it pays for the legal penalty 
of spiritual death. Christ paid that penalty, that substitutionary work on the cross. But the spiritually dead problem, spiritual death problem, is limited, is solved by regeneration and is limited to those who believe in Christ. This is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can come enter the kingdom of heaven unless he has been born again. There must be that rebirth. He must move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then the lack of righteousness problem is solved by the fact that the instant we trust Christ as Savior, then that his righteousness is imputed to us. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. When we believe in Jesus, God gives us Christ's righteousness. That's the transaction that takes place. So what we're looking at, though, is those facets of Christ's death that relate to that first category of the payment for sin. And they come under different uh, designations because each focuses on a different facet. So this morning we're looking at what the Bible teaches about redemption. Now the key verse for substitution was 2 Corinthians 5.21, a great verse to memorize. A second key verse, that is the key verse related to related to redemption, is 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your aimless or your empty manner of life by tradition from your fathers, that is the rabbinical tradition that somehow you could pay for your sins by your good works. So Peter is saying it's with it's not paid with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. Now that takes us back to what we studied at the beginning was those Old Testament prophecies and pictures called types of Christ that portray different aspects of what would be accomplished by the Messiah when he came. He's identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by John the Baptist. And it is at his death that he fulfills that imagery and that typology of a sacrifice that that he is sacrificed like the lamb so that since the lamb was without spot or blemish he is without spot or blemish he is impeccable he has no sin we talked about this in the uh, lord's table we observed earlier that that unleavened bread pictures the perfect humanity of the lord jesus christ qualifying us qualifying him to go to the cross. Now, when we look at what was accomplished on the cross, we have a barrier between man and God. That barrier is composed of different facets. I'm not going to go through everything in the barrier. The basic problem is sin that separates us. The second problem is the penalty of sin. The third problem, which we will look at under propitiation, is the character of God. Those three are, are positional, as is the last one, our position in Adam. And, but spiritual death, our problem of being unrighteous, and the problem of our position in Adam don't change until we believe. 
But those first three, the sin problem, the penalty of sin, the character of God are resolved by the work of Christ directed toward God the Father. And these are covered under the aspects of unlimited atonement or substitutionary atonement and redemption and expiation, as we'll look at this week and next week. Now, as we look at redemption, as we do with any teaching of the Scripture, it's important to go back and look at the words that are used in the original language. Now, I've got many other lessons where I go through all of the different words that are used and translated on some different aspect of redemption. But basically, in the Old Testament, you only have two words. In the New Testament, you have two word groups, okay? So we'll just, the Old Testament, you have a great picture that we talked about uh, two weeks ago, the word ga'al, that relates to the noun go'el, which is a kinsman redeemer. Ga'al is the verb for redeem, and it means to purchase. And we saw that picture in the Old Testament that is provided for for Israel that if there is someone who is a a slave, they have incurred a debt that they can that can be redeemed by someone who is a blood relative. And the picture there is that for our payment of sin to be accomplished, it has to be paid for by a human being. An angel couldn't do it. God alone, if Jesus had come just as deity, he could not pay the penalty. Like had to substitute for like. And so that's the emphasis under the picture of the kinsman redeemer. And then the other word that is the more predominant word in the Old Testament is the word pada, which emphasizes the payment of a price. That's what runs through the doctrine of redemption. The other day we were driving and we were going down Gessner after they had uh, just finished all this expansion work and everything. And for those who've been around this part of Houston for a while, there used to be a redemption center. Back in the day, they used to give out these little stamps when you bought groceries and whatever, and then you could take S&H green stamps or bonus stamps or something like that, and you would go to this place, and it's called a redemption center. And what you do is you engage a transaction where you exchange your book of stamps for a new coffee maker or uh, at one time... Camp Penile collected enough bonus stamps to buy a school bus to take campers to Camp Penile. So you could get just about anything if you had enough stamp books, okay? But it's called a redemption center. It is a financial term for an exchange of one thing for another where you pay the price. So that's the idea in redemption. The New Testament has a number of different words, but they're all based on two roots. There's the root L-U-T, lutrao. You have various forms of that depending on the prefixes and different things. Six different words are used there to emphasize the payment of a price, especially to purchase something or to purchase the release of a slave to release somebody from slavery. So that's the Lutrao group. The Agarazzo group has a little different emphasis. Now, in English, we have a word, agoraphobia, which is somebody who has a fear of going out into public places 
or to fear of being in the marketplace. The agora was the marketplace. That was the term. So if you go to the market on any given day, you go to the grocery store or whatever, uh, you go to Walmart where you can get just about anything, then that's going to the agora. As it was in the ancient world, they had everything. That's where you bought anything from hard goods to uh, groceries. So the, uh, the idea of the verb is to, once again, to go purchase something, but it was often used for purchasing someone fr- someone's freedom or someone as a slave from the slave market. Okay, so that was the idea. So the Bible is using these two words that are very common in everyday language for purchasing things and applies that to understanding what is happening at the cross, that there is a financial-type transaction that occurs there. And it's very interesting how many of the words related to uh, sin and related to the payment of sin, are financial. The words for forgiveness mean to both words, uh, charizomai and afiemi, relate to canceling a debt. They were used in banking systems, and so that's applied to the believer that his sin, the sin penalty is a debt that has to be paid. That transaction is paid at the cross through that redemption price. The idea of redemption in the Old Testament is pictured by what happened at the Passover, the original Passover. It's the tenth plague in the series of plagues that led to uh, the freedom of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So there you have all of those images. You have they were slaves in Egypt. There is a payment that is paid, and that for their freedom was the lamb, that was without spot or blemish, the Passover lamb that was slaughtered and the blood applied to the uh, door of their homes, and then God passed over so that he did not take the life of the firstborn in Israel, whereas he took the life of the firstborn in Egypt. So Deuteronomy 15.15 says, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. So what that immediately brings to our attention is this imagery of slavery, that we are, as Paul talks about, as we'll see in Romans 6, that we're born in slavery to our sin nature. We are born with one master, the sin nature. The sin nature controls, the sin nature dominates. We can't do anything that isn't a product of the sin nature because the sin nature is the, the controlling feature of every human being's life. Sin nature can produce relatively good things, and the sin nature can produce horrible, evil, wicked things. But that picture of slavery and redemption, purchasing the slave's freedom, is the picture that we see in the Passover in Deuteronomy fifteen fifteen. Because of that, God earns the title in the Old Testament of the Redeemer. He is the Redeemer, the Holy One, the Unique One of Israel. And this is used in Isaiah 48, 17. And in Isaiah 44, 22, uses a 
slightly different terminology, but this is the picture that takes place, as we'll see in the New Testament in Colossians 2, 12 to 14. God says, I have wiped out your transgressions. It is the the, the counterpart to the Greek in Colossians 2, 12 to 14, that the debt is canceled. It is wiped out. God deals with, eradicates the sin problem. He cleanses from sin. And at this time, Israel is in rebellion to him, and so his message is, Return to me, for I have purchased you. When did that happen? In the history of Israel, that purchase price occurs at the Passover. They have been bought with a price, so they are to now follow the Lord. They are his. So as we look at several points on redemption, first of all, redemption looks at salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment of sins. It's complete. It's still nothing can be added to it. This is why Jesus says to Telestai, it is complete. It, it was completed in the past. That, that perfect tense verb indicates something that isn't continuing to be completed, but has already been completed. It, it was finished in the past, but the results continue. So when Jesus says to Telestai, it indicates that payment is complete. We talked about this in the past, that in the ancient world, papyri have been uh, discovered and other things have been discovered, pottery and other things that have this word to Telestai there, that there's a bill that is due. And when the bill was paid in full, then to Telestai is written at the bottom of the bill, just as we would go someplace and we would pay a bill and they would stamp it paid in full. It's that financial transaction. It's complete. We can't add to it. In fact, if we try to add to it, then we destroy the grace nature of Christ's salvation and we're not saved. So faith plus anything, faith plus baptism, faith plus doing good, faith plus discipleship, any of these terms that come along today distort grace and you're not saved because you're trying to do something in addition to what Christ did on the cross. And so whenever a person tries to do something to add to what Christ did on the cross, they are in essence blaspheming the work of Christ on the cross. They're saying it wasn't enough. I'm good enough to add something to what the perfect Savior provided on the cross. That's why they're not saved by believing a faith plus something gospel. So 1 Peter 1.18 tells us that this was accomplished, this redemption is accomplished by the precious blood of Christ. The term blood of Christ is an idiom, a picture, again, of the violent shedding of blood pictures a violent form of death. It is not the blood in and of itself, the properties of the blood, the plasma, the hemoglobin, the red cells, white cells, all of that. That's that's not what's efficacious because this is a metaphor. It is a picture of something that happens in terms of physical death. So we have passages such as in in Genesis 9, 6, when um, God is speaking the, to Noah, giving him the Noahic covenant, and he says, If anyone sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That idiom there of the shedding of blood 
pictures a violent kind of death. It pictures murder. It doesn't just restrict it to a murder where blood is shed. Somebody has been stabbed and they bleed out. It is picturing a murder. So it could accomplish through some sort of head trauma where there's no bleeding, or it could picture somebody who takes poison. Any of those things would fit the category of a violent form of death. So that's the image there. The blood of Christ pictures a violent form of death, and it ultimately pictures not the physical death, but the spiritual death. When God the Father imputed to Christ our sins from 12 noon to 3 p.m. when darkness is on the face of the earth, and it is during that time that Jesus was not separated from God in terms of his Trinitarian relationship to God, but in judicially he is separated from God. He's still one with God in terms of the Trinity. That's not fragmented but he is judicially separated, and that's spiritual death. He died spiritually on the cross, but it is on our behalf. So this is the key verse, 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Lewis Berry Chafer, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and for whom Chafer Theological Seminary is named, said, Redemption is an act of God by which... He himself pays as a ransom the price of human sin, which the outraged holiness and government of God requires. Now, if you look at that, he talks about the requirement of God's holiness, his righteousness and his justice. So that last part connects redemption to what we'll talk about as as satisfaction in the fourth of the five things that we're talking about in terms of Christ's work on the cross. All of these are interconnected, but they are distinct works of Christ on the cross. Second thing that we see, as I've talked about, is that the Old Testament imagery of slavery in Egypt forms the background to teach about our slavery to sin. So just as the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians, so we are born slaves to sin. And Paul talks about this. Romans 6, 6, he uses the phrase that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Why? Because it's salvation, that tyranny of the sin nature is broken. Before that, we were slaves to sin. Romans six seventeen, Paul says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, that is the unbeliever. He is a slave to sin. In Romans six twenty. Again, Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin. So we are born in that slave market to sin. We are all enslaved to our sin nature with no option but to do what the sin nature uh, dictates, whether it's morality or immorality, whether it is the relative good deeds of, of it, that any human being can, can produce or whether it is evil and wickedness. This is also referred to in Galatians 4 5 where Paul says to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons and the word there for redeem is ex agorazo agorazo means to buy something at the marketplace ex agorazo means to purchase it out of the marketplace ex to take out of and so we are purchased out of that slave market of sin. 
third thing that we learn from the Scripture is that redemption then becomes the basis for our justification. This is in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through, that's the means that justification is accomplished through the redemption, that is through the payment made by Jesus Christ. The fourth thing we learn is that redemption then becomes the basis for our sanctification. That is our uh, positional sanctification and also our experiential sanctification that's used in an analogy related to the love husbands are to have for their wives, that that is compared to Christ's love for the church. He gave himself for her. That is substitutionary uh, Atonement again, substitutionary redemption, for the purpose that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. This is related to our spiritual life after salvation. So redemption, because he has paid the price, we are able to live for him and grow spiritually. Fifth, Redemption is directly tied to the forgiveness of sin. So we've seen that forgiveness is the means by which justification is accomplished. We have seen that redemption is the basis for our post-salvation spiritual life and spiritual growth and sanctification. And then it is directly tied to forgiveness of sins. So redemption doesn't just hang out there in isolation. We've also seen it's connected to propitiation, but it's connected to forgiveness. That is the uh, payment price that leads to the remission of sin. Two passages are important here. Ephesians 1.7, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Again, we see the emphasis of his death as the payment price for sin. The redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now, a lot of people can get confused on this. And I remember it wasn't until I studied an important passage here that we'll get to uh, a little later on, probably next week, in Colossians 2, 12 to 14, where that forgiveness is talked about in Colossians uh, 2.13 as exp- is explained as having taken place when the certificate of death was canceled, taken out of the way, and nailed to the cross. So forgiveness here isn't talking about our experience of forgiveness at the time of faith in Christ. It's not talking about our post-salvation forgiveness. It is talking about the payment for sin that cancels the debt at the cross. This occurred historically in 33 AD and is the basis for the doctrine and the teaching of unlimited atonement or unlimited redemption. Colossians 1.14 says the same thing, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Paying the price cancels the debt. So that payment of sin is something objectively real that cancels the debt so that sin is no longer the issue for anyone. You talk to an unbeliever, he needs to understand he's spiritually dead, but the issue isn't how bad he is. 
The issue isn't tell he's got to confess all the sins he's ever committed. He doesn't have to recite and feel guilty about every horrible thing that he's done. His personal sin isn't the issue because that's been paid for at the cross. The issue is what has what Christ did for him and will he accept that payment or not? Will he believe in Christ or not? And we are, again, Hebrews 9.12 says that that with his own blood, that is, by his death, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There's nothing that can be added to Christ's work. So, thinking through what we've what we've looked at already, that redemption pays the price, redemption cancels the debt, that's forgiveness, the word forgiveness, afiemi, that's used in, in Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.17 is a financial term that this debt has been canceled, and that is the focus of what is called expiation, the cancellation of our sins, which we'll get to a little more, look at this in a little more detail uh, next time. In Colossians 2.14, now what I've done here is expand the translation because what you have is a string of participles in the Greek, and usually translators just translate them as a raw participle without showing what they mean adverbially. So I've tried to add that. So it begins, and you, that is, when you were dead, emphasizing your that at the time that we trust Christ, we're dead. When we're dead, in that status of being dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, he has made alive together with him. Now, he makes us alive together with him when we trust in him. That's, that's we're born again by faith. But we go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive by that, that faith in him. Then you have a participle related to forgiveness. It's the, the verb is charizomai, which also talks about the cancellation of a debt. Okay, it is not, and that's the idea there. It is a financial term, and it's used in the parables uh, of Jesus uses it one time to refer to uh, the landowner who cancels a debt that was to be paid. So it's that cancellation of a debt idea. He has made us to live together with him. Now, how do we understand that next verb? It's causal. He makes us alive. He can regenerate us because he has already canceled the debt. He canceled the debt, which is the legal guilt of our, of our trespasses, that legal penalty of spiritual death. And then it says, another participle, by wiping, or when, I think it's temporal, he canceled the debt when he wiped out that handwriting of requirements, that certificate of debt that was against us. So he is able to regenerate us because he has canceled or forgiven our sin, our trespasses, when he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And when did he do that? He did it when he nailed it to the cross, the last line. That's a historical event. It's not when you and I trust Jesus. That's not when he cancels the debt. He canceled the debt by nailing it to the cross. That's a historical reality. This is one of the greatest passages that is not, I think, well taught or understood 
a lot of times. It emphasizes that Christ paid the penalty for everyone, believer and unbeliever on the cross, so that sin is no longer the issue, only faith in Christ. So redemption then not only applies to salvation, but it is going to apply to our bodies eventually that they are to be redeemed in the resurrection, Ephesians 1.14, that referring to the Holy Spirit, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And that is the redemption of our body, Romans 8.23. So in terms of the practical, significant application of this, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He paid a price so that when we trust in him, we realize that we are no longer ours. We've been purchased out of that slave market of sin. There's no intermediate owner. We don't get freedom because Christ paid the price. We are now his. We go from being under the mastership of the sin nature to being under Christ's mastership. He is the one who is now our master. That's why Paul says that we are to no longer live as slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. But it's not lordship salvation, which is what is often taught today, because we can choose not to, not to be slaves of of righteousness and slaves of Christ. We are bought by him, we are owned by him, but we can still be rebellious slaves. And there are many Christians who are that way. They are thankful they have been freed from slavery to the sin nature, and they use that as an excuse to sin. That's also what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. So the end game for redemption is, first of all, realizing our sins are canceled, The penalty is paid, so all that we need for salvation is to trust in Christ. And second, once we do that, we are now owned by the Lord Jesus Christ for a purpose that we glorify him in our lives today with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study redemption today, to be reminded that we are our Lord's. We have been bought with a price And we are to live for him. We are no longer to yield ourselves to the sin nature, to the tyranny of the sin nature, because of this, the fact that we have been bought with a price. We are now his. Father, we pray that you would challenge us, that that those who have never trusted in Christ would have a better, clearer understanding of the good news of the gospel, that our salvation is complete, because Christ paid the penalty. Our uh, sin has been paid for completely because Christ paid the penalty. So all we need to do is to trust in him, to believe in him, and instantly we will be regenerated, we will receive the righteousness of Christ, and we will have eternal life. For the rest of us, we are to be challenged that we are to live for him. We have been bought with a price, and therefore we are to glorify him in our body with the rest of our lives. Now, Father, we pray that as we think and reflect upon these great truths of redemption, that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us 
and in terms of understanding its ramifications in every area of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.